you and I and Joe Public out there on the streets, do you know we all have something in common, something we might not like to admit, but something that we share nevertheless. We are all hungry for power. We're hungry for power. We, we long to be in control of our world, don't we? A world filled with chaos and danger. Well, power, power means we can be secure in the midst of this chaotic world. Power, power means we can make a difference. We can be significant as these tiny people in a giant world. Power means we can choose our own path. We're not simply at the mercy of others, at the mercy of circumstances to live a life that's driven and shaped. And I, I don't think this hunger for power is a secret. Marketers use it all the time on us, don't they? How do they sell you a new car? The new car will give you power. Power to drive around corners slightly faster than you could before. Power to overtake the irritating caravan in front of you. Car will give you power. Or, or what will a new dress for you? What will a new dress do for you? A new dress will give you power. Power to turn heads. Power to be noticed. Power to stand out. Or think about the way each side tried to attract our vote in the, the EU referendum we just lived and suffered through. Vote leave, they said, so we can take back control, so we can have power, power over our borders, over our laws, power over our money. And the other side said, vote remain, because if you vote remain, Britain will be safer and stronger and better off. It'll be safer because we'll have more power to defend ourselves. It'll be stronger because we will have more power over what goes on in the world if we're a part of this EU than outside on our own. We'll have more power because the more you have in your pocket, the more power you have in this world. Both sides ultimately pitched for our vote, saying this will give you power. But once you start to think about it, who really has power in this world? Uh, who of you, for example, has any power over the weather? Do you call this summer, Scotland? Ah, we had some sun back in May, but, but surely that's not the, the entire year gone now. But the truth is we're all utterly powerless in the face of the Scottish weather, right? All we can do is dress appropriately and see what happens. You know, that means dressing at the same time for wind, rain, sun, hail, snow, and uh, then, I don't know, perhaps some sheep. Um, we're powerless in the face of the weather, but what about, what about your job? If your job is um, like almost every job in this country, isn't your job one where you are just a tiny cog in a giant machine, ultimately powerless? Or, or what about time? Who has, any, who has any power over their time? If you're, if you're a student or if you're, a, if you're at school here, can't you feel the summer slipping away from you already? Can't you feel it dripping through your hands as every day goes by? All of us are ultimately powerless when it comes to our time. How many days we'll have here on earth for all our sophistication and technology? We're still basically powerless. No one can buy one second more. Nobody can make one second more in their life. But what about your health? Sure, you can eat well. You can take your vitamins. You can exercise. 
none of us really have that much power over our health. It can be taken from us so suddenly, can't it? Many of us know what that's like. The truth is, though we are hungry for power, so often when we're willing to open our eyes and really consider what's going on around us, we find that we are powerless. Utterly powerless, or at least scarily close to that. And this powerlessness grates on us. Often I think we respond simply with hopeless resignation, right? We sing, Kesarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. I wonder how many of you face down you're powerless like that. In this giant world, I'm powerless, so whatever. Let's just let it happen. Shrug the shoulders. Another way we can respond, though, another way we can respond is grasping at what little power we do have, like, like, like the child who has no control at home, so when they find themselves in the playground, acts the bully. Like the receptionist at the bottom of the tree in the office, so when it comes to the room booking diary, all power is hers. In the face of our powerlessness, is there another way to respond? Now, we as a church have been studying our way through the ancient book of Isaiah these last months, and we're going to continue our study. It's a book which was written thousands of years ago, but it's a book which still has things to say to us today. And the passage we come to today was written for a powerless people. Uh, people like us who were powerless but longed for it. It was written to the people of Israel, to God's chosen people. And yet this special people, they find themselves living in exile after a crushing defeat by a mighty empire. How special could they be? They find themselves as a nation separated from everything they thought had power. They're no temple. There's no king. They're outside the land they were given, which they owned. It's a passage which speaks about power and how to respond when we feel powerless. So we're going to read together. We're going to study today's passage in three chunks. And the first one speaks about where it is we look for power. Can you find Isaiah chapter 41 with me? Isaiah chapter 41. And if you have one of our guest Bibles here, uh, that's on page 726. Isaiah chapter 41 and page 726. The chapters are these uh, the big numbers in the Bible and the little ones are the verses. Let's pray as we come to read Isaiah chapter 41. Lord God, please make your ancient word living and active and powerful among us today. Would you speak? By the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So let's read. We're going to read verses 1 to 7. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on, unscathed, by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, 
calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last. I am he. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it's good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. So what's going on here? God tells us he is raising up a great conqueror and then he invites the the, the fearful nations to hope in him, but instead where they turn is to their idols. Now, having set this up as God's passage, speaking to God's people, the first section we've just read actually speaks to others. Do you see in verse one? Be still before me, you islands. That's how our Bible translates the Hebrew term, which is, it's more general. It can mean coastlands or just borders. And in the next verse, see, it continues, let the the nations renew their strength. So here God is addressing not his exiled people, not just his exiled chosen people, but other nations, but all nations. And he tells them, he tells them to be silent. He tells them to come and meet with him and discuss things. And somewhat peculiarly, he tells them to renew their strength. Now, that phrase might make you scratch your head to begin with, but if you look back just one verse into the previous chapter, I think what God means becomes clear. See in chapter 40, verse 31, just above, those who hope in the Lord are the ones who will renew their strength. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. So when God speaks to these nations and he says to them, renew your strength, he is inviting them to hope in him. He's calling on them to put their hope, to put their trust in him. But why would they do such a thing? Why would the nations put their hope in God? Well, he goes on to explain. He says, this is because I am the one with power. Because I am the one who is in control. And then he provides evidence. He says, who has stirred up this one from the east? He tells them about one who will overrun nations, one who will mow down kings, one who's going to turn them to dust. And God's point is that this conqueror, this coming ruler, is in God's service. It's not an uncontrolled force from outside. It's not another power. This is in God's service, at God's beck and call. See in verse 2, what does he say? Stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service. It is God who calls this conqueror and he calls him into his service. And God says more. This conqueror isn't just in God's service. The conqueror succeeds because God decrees it. It's not because he's a great strategist. It's not because his army has superior technology. It's because God decrees it and gives these people to him. It's like the conqueror is walking along a path that God has opened through these nations in front of him. God is the one with power in this section, the one that's behind the great conqueror, the one who enables his conquest. That's what God claims, and that's why the nations should renew their strength and put their hope in this mighty God who is the one who is in charge. 
God is in control. God is the one with power. Look down at verse four and read. Who has done this and carried it through? Who did this? I, the Lord, did this. And in fact, God makes a greater claim. He doesn't just say, I did this. I raised up this Cyrus and cleared his path before him. He says that his power extends all the way back and forwards, calling forth the generations from the beginning, he says. With the first of them, he says, and with the last, it extends all the way to the end. God isn't just claiming power over this one king and this one conquest. He says, it's all mine, everywhere. I direct everything. The Lord our God is making a massive claim to power. That's why he summons the islands and the nations to him. That's why he calls them to hope because he has the power and he can deliver. But how do these people respond? Well, look at verse five. They, they fear. They tremble. They hear about these things. They, they know a great conqueror is coming. It's a threat enough that causes these nations who would so freely stab each other in the back at a moment's notice otherwise, to band together. They help each other. How do they respond? In this moment, they feel so profoundly powerless. In the face of great power, worried about their security, how do they respond? Well, it says they, they, they make an idol, these metal workers, the goldsmith, the, the, the blacksmith. You get the sense as you read this passage. They're all running around like headless chickens going, ah, 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 and quick, let's make an idol, let's make an idol. I'll help you. You know, you, you normally hammer on the anvil, but I'm the blacksmith. Let me, let me help you get that sorted out. And, oh, oh, oh. and then it comes to the end of this building. And what do they do? It finishes with nailing the idol down so it won't fall over. Can you feel the irony there? Terrified, feeling powerless, they, they race around, make this idol to hope in, but yet they know it can't even stand up by itself. Can't it even stand up unless they nail it down. And yet they're hoping this has the power to resist this great and coming conqueror. They must know how feeble this idol is, this idol they just made. They have the power to make it. That's how powerless it is. And yet rather than putting their hope in the Lord, this is where they put theirs. Now, I doubt there's anyone here who responds to insecurity and powerlessness by going and making a statue. But before we write this off as just the sort of way that foolish, ancient, superstitious peoples might have responded, but clever people like us would never do anything like that. Modern people would never do anything like that. Do you know this? Do you know that six out of the 10 largest idols in the world were built in the last 20 years? Six out of the 10 largest idols in the world were built in the last 20 years. This is not something that is confined to ancient history, this making of idols. The world around us is busy doing this right now, building enormous statues. Most of them are Buddhas in China. Perhaps that's just elsewhere, though. But think, when, when we are afraid... 
when we feel powerless, where is it that modern, clever people like us turn for help? Imagine if you saw a threat headed towards you. I don't know what it might be. Uh, a, a crushing recession. Uh, perhaps a massive terrorist attack. Maybe a newly aggressive Russia. Imagine a threat comes towards you. Where do you turn? What's your first instinct when you are under threat? I think so much of the time we turn to this boy, to our flexible friend, Mr. Credit Card. I think for us, money is so often where we look for security, isn't it? It's what we think has the power to keep us safe in the face of virtually anything. Do we have idols? Oh, you bet we do. So the nations, seeing and fearing, well, they turn to idols. They turn to these idols they've made and then nailed down. But Israel, God's people, are called to respond differently. So we're going to read again. We're going to pick up at verse 8. Verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth, and you will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You'll winnow them and the wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord. And glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and the needy, they search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I'll make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I'll turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I'll put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I'll set junipers in the wasteland. The fir and the cypress grow together so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. So this section starts with comfort for Israel. Look back up to verses 8 and 9. It talks about them being chosen, called, and then again in verse 9, 
chosen. They're reminded of how special they are to God. And then in verses 10 and 13, you get this outpouring of comfort. Don't fear. I am with you. I will help you. I will uphold you. And then it's repeated again in verse 13. And these expressions of comfort and confidence, they're needed. Because do you see what they're wrapped around between verses 10 and 13? You've got this increasing aggression, those who rage against you, those who oppose you, those who are your enemies, those who wage war against you. And yet all of this is going to come to nothing, he says. That's God's comfort to his people in the face of their powerless exile. But he's got more than just comfort in the midst of their powerlessness, scattered amongst this vast Babylonian empire. He reassures them that they are, in fact, significant. Now, they're not much to look at. In verse 14, he calls them a worm, which is not exactly a kind of upbuilding sort of encouraging term, is it? Worm, little Israel, he says. They're not much to look at. They're, they're the sort of thing somebody might step on by accident, you know, or cut in two to see if it really doubles. This tiny worm, with the help of the Lord, their Redeemer, is going to destroy mountains, he says. Picture that for a moment and get a sense for how absurd this contract is. This contrast is you've got earthworm versus cairngorm. Can you picture that sort of contest? And the worm kind of wriggles around and makes a few holes and aerates the soil at the bottom. But really, the worm versus a mountain, it's just ridiculous. And yet God says that is not how it will be because the worm will be changed into a threshing sledge. Who's ever heard of a threshing sledge before? That's kind of a, a part of ancient agriculture. It's not the sort of thing you ride downhill. It's designed to crush and to smash and to um, tear apart these grains so they're ready for extraction. And what he says is the worm, this tiny worm, turns into a crushing, smashing thing that isn't just going to crush grain, it's going to crush mountains and hills. They're going to be transformed. This trivial, insignificant, overlooked Israel are going to become a sort of cosmic flymo, leveling mountains. Protection, significance, and then there's a final passage of comfort to Israel, promising God's provision for them. He pictures them as the, the poor and the needy, and that's a very accurate depiction of what Israel in exile would have looked like. And he promises them water and shelter in the desert. It's got all these different trees listed out and all these different words for water and springs. Now, Bear Grylls knows what do you need to survive in the desert? The first things you need are water and shelter, right? Why is all of this done for God's people? Why do you get this protection, this significance, this provision? Verse 20 tells us. Have a look. It's so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. They may understand that God is the one who really has power. And then verse 16 tells us, so they'll rejoice in the Lord and they'll glory in the Holy One, knowing that God has all power and that they're his people. What a joy. So we've read about two radically different responses to powerlessness. On the one hand, the nation's powerful and, uh, powerless and fearful. They make for themselves idols. On the other hand, God promises his people protection, significance, and provision in the midst of it. 
They must recognize they're powerless, but know they're wrapped in his all-powerful hands. But there's one more scene for us to consider in today's passage, so we're going to read again, picking up at verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what's going to happen? Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know you are God's. Do something whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and feared with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay, Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know? Or beforehand so that we could say he was right. No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a message of good news. I look, but there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. So we've been talking about power and powerlessness and this final scene from today's text. God has decided that it is time for those who claim to have power to prove it Present your case, he says in verse 21. Enter the ring. Step up. And the first to face the challenge and to set out their arguments are these idols, these these things made by the fearful nations in search of power. Of course, those who made them will have to bring them in because they, they can't move themselves. So what's the challenge? How are we going to settle this question of who really has power? Is it going to be some sort of cosmic arm wrestle? A a, a great tug of war? No, the test is simple, verse 23 tells us. The test is simple. Tell us what the future holds so we may know your gods. Here's the decider. Here's what's going to show you who truly has power. Who can tell you what will happen? But these idols, of course, they're feet nailed down so they don't fall over, carried in by those who made them. Well, what do they say? They say nothing at all. And then it's almost as if God begins to taunt them. He says, so that we may know your gods, do something, do, do anything. That's what that expression, good or bad, means. It's kind of anything. Do, do anything at all, come on. But there's just stillness and silence. These idols are nothing. They're, they're, they're less than nothing, if that was possible. They're utterly worthless. And then God goes on to cast scorn on whoever would be stupid enough to look to such a useless thing for power. And then it's God's turn to enter the ring. You have to imagine that these idols need to be carried back out. Now their turn is kind of over. 
And God begins in verse 25 with an echo of what he said in verse 2. He says, I am the one who has stirred up a new conqueror from the north. Who is it that is going to trample over rulers? Well, as we'll see, it is Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire. But here in chapter 41, we get just this first ripples of this remarkable revelation. Uh, Remarkable because Isaiah is writing hundreds of years before Israel is even in exile. Hundreds more years before this Cyrus will show up. Here we get the vaguest sketch of an outline, but if you continue to read through the book of Isaiah, you'll see things get clearer and clearer. That, that Babylon is the one that's going to fall to this conqueror. That's announced in chapter 43, verse 13, that the name of this conqueror will be Cyrus. That's announced in chapter 44, verse 28. This Cyrus, he is coming. But then we get this confusing addition, one from the rising sun. See, in verse 25, we have one from the north. And in the same verse, we have one from the rising sun. Well, here's a pop quiz for you. Where does the sun rise? Is it in the north? Our sun rises in the east. The sun rises in the east. What is this? Critics will say it's just another example of why we don't put too much weight on the Bible. You can't come from the north and the east. What a silly idea. How could Isaiah even have written something so silly down? He must have been confused, making it up out of his head. But here's the thing. And remember that Isaiah is writing hundreds of years before Babylon crushes Jerusalem, before there's any such thing as a Persian empire. Here's the thing. The Persian empire, where Cyrus founds and where he comes from, that sits around the Babylonian Empire. Do you know where it is? It's to the north and it's to the east. It's around the empire, to the north and the east. North and east. Cyrus comes from the north and the east. More than this, history tells us Cyrus was born in what is today Iran, east of Babylon, east of Jerusalem. That's where Cyrus comes from. But history tells us Cyrus's campaign against Babylon comes from the north. There's a key battle at a place called Opis and the Babylonian army is routed there and then the the, the Persians rush down on Babylon. They come down from the north. From the north and from the east. It's remarkable, isn't it? Both correct. So back to this contest. Time for those who claim to have power to prove it. How does God prove he has power? He proves it by foretelling, by speaking what will be. Cyrus the Great, who seems to conquer absolutely everything in his path, establishes the largest empire of ancient history, estimated as 45% of the world's population at the time, probably larger than anything before it or since. But it isn't this great king who really has power. He only rules because God decrees it. He only conquers because God calls him and opens his path. It's God who really has power. He speaks and it happens. 
And it's really important that we see clearly how this demonstrates God's power. We have to grasp the difference between foretelling on the one hand and forecasting on the other. Forecasting, like, I don't know, weather forecasting or, or financial forecasting, that's trying to figure out what's going to happen from what we know, from what we see from what's gone before, from what we understand. And, and you can tell every day straight after the news that this is a complicated world and that forecasting is very hard to get right. Will it rain tomorrow? Well, the forecast says rain, fancy that. Uh, the forecast says rain, but nobody really knows what will happen tomorrow. And the same is true of financial forecasting, right? Who saw the great crash of 2008 coming? Well, pretty much nobody forecast that. Nobody really knows what's coming in the future with any certainty when they're forecasting. But God is not forecasting. He's not weighing up the strategic mind of Cyrus and thinking about the, the weakening of the organization within the Babylonian Empire and the, 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 the weakness of their current king. He's not thinking about the different weapons technologies that the two civilizations possess and how the terrain will favor one or the other. That's not what God is doing. He tells us the future not because he can analyze situations and guess and have a hunch and estimate what will happen. He tells us the future because he makes the future. The future is in his hands. That's why he can foretell it because he is the one who will make it. And God is foretelling more than just Cyrus will come here. He's foretelling that this is good news for Jerusalem. You see that in verse 27. I gave to Jerusalem a message of good news. Even though your, your average Babylonian era bystander would have just thought one great empire, the Babylonians, is washed away by another, the Persians. Is that good news for Jerusalem? But remarkably it was. Perhaps you'll know how amazingly good news this was. The, the, the new king of the Persian empire randomly, out of the blue, invites God's people to go home to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Extraordinary. You can read the story in the book of Ezra. It's good news for Jerusalem. But the big point God is making through this section is that God has power. Where our idols are powerless. God proves he has power by foretelling the future. He foretells the future because he makes the future. He sets the future. God speaks where our idols are silent. Even all-powerful money Mr. Credit Card, cannot make the future. Game set and match to God. Maybe you're here today and you think this is all very well, but you have doubts about God's power. It's important that we can show you evidence that God says beforehand what will happen. Today's passage invites you to test him in that way, to see if God really can say what will happen before it is. And there are loads of places in the Bible God foretells loads of different things that he's going to do. We looked at just one of them today and you see some of the amazing detail in there. But if you want to explore this question for yourself, why not start with the very heart of the Christian faith? Why not start with Jesus? Um, by some counts, there are over 300 prophecies foretellings about Jesus written down before he was ever on the face of this earth. See if what God says is what happens. A really easy way to do this would just be to read the Gospel of Matthew, the first of the Gospels. It makes a real point of saying, here's the prophecy, 
And here's the fulfillment. It shows them to you again and again. Or come chat to me afterwards and we can look at some more of the amazing things God has said about Jesus before they happened. But find out for yourself. God makes this very big claim. He claims, I tell the future because I make the future. Has he done it in the past? Here's why it matters whether he's done it in the past. Because he has told us one more thing that is to come. And that is that Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. And if God is the one who makes the future, if you find in the past that he can tell you what will happen and then it happens, then you should know for the future what he has said will happen, will happen. Well, as we come to a close, here's the key question for us as powerless people. Where is it that we are going to turn? Do we fall into hopeless resignation? when we find ourselves powerless in this world? Do we just abandon ourselves to its powers? Live our lives pushed around? As we read earlier, not one of us can add a single hour to our lives. Surely we are powerless. We're driven to look outside ourselves for power. So do we look to idols? Maybe statues? Probably not statues. Things we think have power. Is it ultimately my wallet that I'm going to turn to when the chips are down? But even this is so limited, isn't it? Don't the events of recent weeks tell you how weak and powerless money can be changed in an instant in your pocket? Or are we at last going to embrace our powerlessness and embrace that because we are in the hands of our powerful God who loves us? We accept God's invitation to the nations to put our hope in him. That invitation is extended to us through Jesus, who invites everyone to come. What does this mean for us? First, we need to find our security under God's sovereign power. Knowing that he treasures us, that we're precious to him, we need to believe that though we're insignificant, God can use us significantly. We need to know that he is willing and able to provide for us in the wilderness. We need to enjoy being people under his power. Second, we need to spot when we veer away from this, when our our hope is drifting towards somewhere else. When life seems to be spinning out of control, in that moment, try and watch yourself. Where is it you turn? What is it you reach for? What is your instinct You can change this. You can decide that it will be God and nothing else. Third, we need to look ahead and have what is ahead shape how we live. We know his power through seeing what he says will happen, will be. Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. This isn't a forecast. This is God foretelling the future because he is its author. Remember what we read Earlier in the service in Matthew 6, do not worry. Why should we not worry? Because our God is powerful and in control and he cares for us. So what should we do instead, free from this worry? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That is our marching orders while we wait for God's great foretelling of Jesus' return. We're powerless That's okay. 
because we find our security in the hands of our loving God. Let me pray for us.